0: Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we tend to talk a lot about ghosting when someone cuts off all communication without warning or explanation when it comes to dating. But it happens amongst friends too. So, why does it, and what should you do if it happens to you? We find out. The Prime Minister, the Premier of Ontario, and the CEO of Volkswagen gathered to sing the praises of the German carmaker's new EV battery plant in St. Thomas, Ontario, and lay out details of the investment. It's being called a game changer for the growth of the clean economy in Canada, creating thousands of jobs on-site and others uh, off-site, residually. But it comes with as much as $13 billion in federal subsidies, a huge number, a huge amount of taxpayer money. Is it worth it? Libraries aren't quite the quiet spots of the past anymore, it turns out. Staff in libraries across the country are sounding the alarm about a jump in violence and aggressive behaviour that they're witnessing and having to cope with. Global's The New Reality looks into the issue. They're airing that story Saturday night. So we look into what's causing it and what can be done to try to fix it. But first, it's a crime right out of a novel or a screenplay. Thieves have made off with an estimated $20 million in gold and other valuables from the holding facility at Toronto's Pearson Airport, the country's busiest A retired Toronto detective and crime novelist joins us with his take on The Big Heist. First up, though, let's begin with this incredible story coming out of Toronto's Pearson International Airport. Uh, Police there are investigating the theft of more than $20 million worth of gold and other valuables earlier this week. It sounds like something right off the page of a novel or off the screen. Uh, Peel Regional Police are searching for suspects following the theft of that cargo from an airport holding facility. Police say a plane carrying the cargo arrived at Pearson, Canada's biggest and busiest, on Monday evening. The container was then taken to a holding facility. Uh, Duty Inspector Steven Divestein stopped short of saying it was a professional job, but he did say there are a lot of moving parts to this investigation. What I can say is that the container contained a high-value shipment. It did contain gold, but was not exclusive to gold and contained other items of monetary value the total worth estimated at this time in our investigation for the property is estimated at just over $20 million. 20 million. I mean, that's a big number for a heist like this. Now, a few other details, the Greater Greater Toronto Toronto Airports Authority says that uh, police, or rather that it was accessed on the public side of a warehouse leased to a third party outside the primary security line. So did not pose a threat to passengers. They wouldn't, Release details on who the air carrier was, where the plane was coming from or headed. Although the Globe and Mail is reporting that it was an Air Canada flight from Zurich that touched down just after 4 p.m. Monday. The cargo was taken, apparently, according to the report, to Air Canada's cargo warehouse at the edge of the airport where it was unloaded. Uh, no details on who may have taken it, where the valuables may be now. But we wanted to find out more about this. Who better to do that than someone who is a crime, was a crime fighter turned crime writer. Desmond Ryan is a retired Toronto police detective, author of the Mike O'Shea crime fiction series, books such as 1033, Assist PC, Death Before Coffee and Man at the Door. Desmond, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome, Ben. Thanks for inviting me in. So this is quite, I mean, this kind of, you know, the details of it started to emerge late yesterday. This is quite the story. This is a big heist by Canadian North American standards.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's certainly not a case of uh, somebody picking up the wrong luggage.
0: Right. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I mean, it has to have been, I mean, we don't want to prejudge anything here, but this wasn't a crime of opportunity. I don't think, or it was, but it wasn't done. uh, it, It was planned.
1: Well, you know, if it was an opportunity, it was an incredible opportunity for somebody. But uh, no, I, I think a tremendous amount of planning would have to go into this because, you know, as, as was mentioned earlier, you'd have to know that the shipment was coming in. You'd have to know where the containers were going to be. You'd have to know which container to get, how to access the area, how to remove the stuff. Um, and then you'd have to know what you're going to do with the property
0: once once you've taken it because I don't imagine yeah. it's easy to unload bars of gold. No, no, you can't sell them on eBay, that's for sure. Tell, tell me, you know, the police are being, as always, the police are being pretty tight-lipped about this. Why would that be? They must have footage. They must have some idea of who they're looking for and what happened. They're just not sharing it.
1: Yeah, I I would strongly believe that they're quite on top of this. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts, as was, was mentioned earlier, but also uh, the... The police are looking at the end game of the prosecution to make sure that all of the all of the pieces in the case fit. That there's nothing left unexamined, um, because the burden of proof is quite high in our legal system, as it should be. And so they want to make sure that when they're doing the investigation, they don't uh, provide information that could be prejudicial or um, misleading. Uh, in any way and to keep the investigation as clean as possible so i believe that's why so little is being said publicly
0: yeah and it took a while for anybody to even learn about it right it took several days before police even came out and said that this had happened um tell me a bit about the i mean i don't know how well you would know the security at different different uh, different parts of the airport but tell me a bit about how much security would normally be in place when that much stuff and valuable stuff is coming through Well, I mean, I'm not an airport security expert by any means, but I mean, having
1: been in an airport, as anybody, you know, any of your listeners would know, uh, there's access areas that only, uh, you know, employees can go into. People have cards they have to scan. Uh, There's uh, cameras everywhere. And I am thinking that if uh, a shipment such as this, that that sort of security would be escalated dramatically. So there must be a lot of footage and a lot of electronic stuff uh, that can be gathered to figure out who was moving, who was where,
0: and a- at what time everything happened. So if you were investigating this, where, where do you begin? You're, you're, I mean, clearly you're, you're looking at the footage and you're looking at who was, who was in the building at the time.
1: Well, uh, this is it again, too. You're looking at an international airport and you know, there's millions of people. So you would narrow down, obviously, to who has access to that particular area and uh, start getting, I mean, seizing all the footage you can. And then even when you have the access cards uh, of everybody who's been in, you then have to rule out every single person before you can sort of start narrowing in on the actual people of interest. So it's quite an involved process, and I'm assuming that there's a real emphasis on getting the property back. So they want to make sure that they're doing a thorough investigation, and they're also following where the property could be
0: going to get it back before it goes out into the ether. Yeah, I mean, you would think if they, if the plan was in place to steal it in the the first place, the plan of where to bring it after and how to get it out of the country, presumably, or get rid of it, would be also in place. So that must have been well in advance. So, I mean, considering this happened Monday, this investigation is probably a lot further ahead than we're aware of, given the amount of details we're finding out. Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean, I, I don't believe at all that, you know, everybody just woke up yesterday and decided they should do something about this. I think there's been a tremendous amount of... Uh, Behind the scenes investigations going on. And I would also suggest that it's going to be multinational, multi-jurisdictional, because as, as we've heard, the, the plane may have come from out of the country um, and the property may be going out of the country as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much you'd know about this, but I I, I didn't realize, I mean, clearly gold moves around the world, but where would would that amount of gold be going? And coming from, presumably it's coming from Switzerland, it's hard to figure out where exactly it was going to.
1: Well, you know, Ben, it's certainly not ending up in my safety box, safety security <laughs> no. box. So I, uh, or mine, again, it's, or mine. Uh, exactly. And and so um, it's not something that uh, whoever took it would want to be holding on to for very long. Um, they want to move it along as quickly as possible
0: so that it's, it becomes untraceable quickly. Where where would you go with it? I mean, where, where normally within these systems, I'm sure you've looked into... Other similar forms of cargo theft over the years. Where does this stuff wind up and what would be a logical route for it to go now?
1: Well, you know, if I knew that, Ben, I think that Peel would probably be calling me and I'd be talking to them instead of you tonight.
0: Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Yeah, I don't want to speculate on that one. Um, You know, I grew up in Montreal, so there was always talk of organized crime at the port, obviously. When you look into this, what what are the questions you have about the security system that was in place uh, in this facility, which, again, is is a privately held facility, right? Just, I gather, not part of Pearson itself. Uh, But what would you be looking at in terms of, of who could have infiltrated that?
1: Well, this is the thing: is, is realizing that it it was infiltrated. Again, it wasn't just somebody who happened to take a wrong turn and ended up, you know, with this this container of of gold. Um, that it was, it's an I, I would hazard to say uh, an inside job. I would say it was well organized. I would say that there are many people involved in it. It's not just one or two people. And I mean, this is purely speculative but i I believe that it there would take a lot of people to pull this off
0: this successfully, if you will to this point uh, doesn't I, I guess there there is going to be a have, there have to be a reckoning about the security now at this facility um, but are you surprised that it that it even happened in the first place? One would think that these days heists like that are hard to pull off well you know ben i I am surprised and
1: mm-hmm. I when I look at the volume of of uh, stuff that goes through Pearson International Airport, I, I mean, it's it's amazing in and of itself. I think what, one of the things we have to keep in mind, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater in this case, mm-hmm. is to look at this as a very uh, specific heist. Very, it's not a random thing, right? So it's, I I think that. Um, it's a, I would look at it as a one off, as opposed to like just saying like oh my goodness, now we're in big trouble
0: with all our security stuff. Right, indeed. I, I suppose like many big heists like this, I like I was in London when the Hatton one happened. They, those guys were caught. The ones who. Bore through a wall and stole a bunch of stuff. They were Mm -hmm. caught eventually, Um, you know. And that was again right off the pages of 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 fiction. In fact, I think it is already a movie now. Uh, Is there? What do you think the chances of finding this stuff actually is? I mean, uh, presumably police noticed it was gone. Hopefully, pretty fast. uh, And you can't move it that quickly. What do you think the chances are of getting it back?
1: Well, I mean, it's it's any anybody's guess because it depends how well organized uh, the the people who who took it are. Um, you know, if if it was me, and you know, just to set the record straight, it's not me. Um, yes. I, I would I would make sure that I've got that a, a channel for that to go right away. So it would basically, just pass right through my hands. Um, yeah. Now, now, having said that, there's a you know a saying in policing where we say you know we don't catch the sm- the smart ones. Um, so let's hope that that this group of people are not that well organized, or at some point something breaks down. That'd be very helpful for the police investigation.
0: Yeah, I- indeed. I mean, organized crime. I mean, this is this is again taking a bit of a stretch, but I think everyone's just speculating at this point about what could have happened based on the movies we've seen and the other heists, uh, similar heists in the past. Um, but but areas where cargo is coming and going have always had issues with organized crime because it's it's such a tempting target.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think when we look at organized crime, it's exactly what it sounds like it is crime that is organized right so it doesn't have to be linked to a crime family or anything like that i mean if you have you know more than three people uh you know who are are getting involved that's an organization like you're you know and it's, it's a it's not something i would imagine that that they just sort of dreamed up one night over
0: some beers right (laughs) <laughs> yes no doubt no doubt i mean i guess we'll know when we know right at this point in time uh but based on your experience i mean you spent a long time as a detective what do you when when you look at at, at who could be behind this do you think it's something do you think it's one of those sort of a bunch of people who saw an opportunity or do you think, or do you think this was sort of targeted the other way around where in other words people were moved in because they knew this stuff was coming in and out
1: you know i obviously i, I have the same information everybody else out there has um I, I would think that people were brought in, and this is completely speculative, of course, but I, I would think that people were brought in knowing that this shipment was going to come in. Because what are the chances of having that group of people in that place at that moment when this shipment came in if it wasn't planned?
0: Right. I mean, I think I think that's that's pretty pretty obvious. I-, I guess I guess the question was more: Do you do you move people in targeting, knowing this is a regular delivery, or is it the other way around? Do you sort of are you in there and recognize the opportunity? I guess I guess it must be uh, door A, is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, and and again, I, because we don't know, uh, you know where where the the uh, the gold was intended to go, who the recipient was. Uh, you know, was it a regular delivery or was it a specific delivery that was? We don't we don't have enough information to really right. have an
0: informed thought about it. In in my right. opinion. If it was a specific, if it was a specific delivery, then this is remarkable because they managed to plan this around a, a one-off. If it was a regular delivery, we would imagine they would have. But we'll find out. We'll find out. Uh, just before we go, you brought up something really interesting because we're about to talk about library violence, and this is something you were, of course, as an author, you talk about. You go to libraries now to talk about your books. This came up uh, for you last night.
1: Yes, yes, I, I was doing a library talk uh, with. Um, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Lynn McPherson, uh, another crime writer, and uh, the librarian was just mentioning how uh, sort of post-pandemic the, the violence in the library has increased. The whole idea of, of libraries as quiet little places to, to rest and, and read as, is out the window.
0: Well, Desmond, uh, thank you. Well, f- listen on on the heist. I guess we'll find out when we find out, right? For the time being, everyone's just speculating. That's the way it goes, right? But, but what a what a what a fascinating crime could be could be the subject of your next uh, Mike O'Shea book, Desmond.
1: Well, you know, I'm not ruling it out. I'm just just putting it out there. So, anything you find out, Ben, you let me know, and I'll just take some notes. Okay.
0: I'll I'll let you know for sure, Desmond Ryan. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Yeah, the last half hour we were talking about that big gold heist in Toronto at Toronto Pearson International Airport. Cat and Gimli was saying we really need to know where who who the gold was going to. You're right. I mean, we're finding out very little from police. Uh, our previous guest in the last half hour, former former detective Desmond Ryan, was saying why that is. They're trying to keep things very uh very close to the to their vest. Presumably because, A, they want to find this stuff, B, they want to be able to prosecute uh, whomever is responsible if and when they are found. We were also talking to Desmond because he's become an author. Uh, He's written a crime series, a novel, a series of crime novels based on a detective called Mike O'Shea. And he gives talks in libraries. And uh, he was mentioning that last night he was at a library in Toronto talking about his books. And the librarian mentioned that there had been a big rise in violence at their library. And that's actually true right across the country. Public libraries, of course, I mean, I go to our public library here where I am quite often. It's big, it's convenient, it's got a lot of stuff. Um, They're one of the last truly public spaces, right, that just about anyone can access for free, can just wander in, right? I mean, that's the beauty of libraries. And because of that, they've also found themselves coping with a whole set of societal issues that we see playing out elsewhere, addiction, mental health, and at times the violence that can come with that. Take these numbers, for instance. A few years back, a survey of more than 500 librarians in four major Ontario cities found almost all respondents had witnessed or experienced violence, intimidation, and harassment on the job. Just over two-thirds said they felt unsafe at work a minimum of a few times per month, and sometimes much higher than that. They are staggering numbers. And again, it's not just big cities. It's happening in many many places. Now, this is a topic that Global's uh, Current Affairs show, The New Reality, will look at tomorrow. It airs tomorrow night at 7. We'll have a preview of that coming up with both the producer and the reporter on that story. But first, let's hear from someone right on the front lines of this problem. Joining me now is Cameron Ray. He's a Senior Department Head at Toronto Public Libraries. Uh, Cameron, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you for having me, Ben. It's a Sort of a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a tough topic, isn't it? I mean, because I, I feel like, I mean, I go to the library quite often because it's not too far from where I live here. And I've seen the, the change. I've seen it. As a librarian, as someone who works within the system, it, it must be a tough one because you want to help and you want to protect yourself all at once.
2: Yes, I, I don't have the words for what this actually is. Um, you right. know, I became a librarian because I wanted to give back. I wanted to help people. No one becomes a librarian for the money, trust me. Right. Um, and so, so within the past, I'd say since 2015, um, you know, I've noticed uh, a huge uptake in violent Incidents. And it's really distressing for us on the front lines because our baseline is respect, right? Like Mm -hmm. you have to earn our disrespect at the library. And that's what these people are unfortunately doing.
0: Yeah, you've had some scary incidents personally as well.
2: I have. Yes, I have been chased uh, with a pair of scissors, like shearing scissors, like for hair. Um, That was terrifying. I've been assaulted several times. Um, I've had my life threatened. Any possible slur you can think of to call a white male, I have been called that. It's a huge detriment. Like, I think the burnout has gone up for my colleagues like, I have several colleagues who we sort of have formed a group where we get together and support each other. And we're all suffering from trauma.
0: I, I, the time that I spend in the library, it's it's hard to figure because there's a lot of different people who who are having, you know, who are either having mental health or addiction issues that tend to congregate towards the warmth and comfort of the library. I've seen it. And it strikes yeah. me that, that is only a small portion cause caused the trouble, right?
2: It is, I'd say it's probably less than 5%. Mm -hmm. um, But that 5% are very loud. And they're probably subconsciously attention seeking, so that they can, you know, get whatever chemicals they need released by getting angry at us, or whatever the situation may be. Right. I mean, a lot of the time they will come here and uh, to the library and and there's no problem for a lot of homeless people or other people with addictions. Mm -hmm. But there just does seem to be this one particular subset who want to be noticed and they they get themselves noticed by um, harassing and assaulting and yelling at us.
0: Right. As, as, basically as symbols of authority. Right. I mean, if you, or, I mean the same thing's happening to we see with public transit. I mean, it's yeah. happening for, for people on the front lines and all of a sudden libraries and those who work in them are on the front lines.
2: Yeah. No, I, right. I think that is a huge part of the problem is that, you know, we are one of the last free, truly free public spaces that is all encompassing and welcoming, which I think is amazing. And I'm behind that 100 percent but at the same time because of that we have no screening methods we don't know if someone is coming in with a weapon we don't know if someone was is coming in who is out of their you know mind on you know drugs or whatever the case may be right. and so we you know walk into these situations as supervisors because we're in charge of the building and we're the ones who are expected to to relay the rules of conduct to these people who just don't care about rules of conduct,
0: right? I, I mean, I, I guess that the solutions are tough because you don't want to become a fortress. That that seems that would be self defeating. You certainly don't want to drive other patrons out of the library. You're no, not no, a frontline. Not you're not a frontline healthcare facility. So, no. what 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 does a solution look like? Do you think?
2: Oh, that is a really tough question. Yeah, well, um, yes, it is. Right, like you know, the Millennium Library in Winnipeg did put in like airport style security took it out because of complaints, had several murders and have now put it back in. Right. I'm not sure that's the best solution. I mean, it does. I mean, I think the bigger problem is the visual of it, right? Like people are used to just coming into the library, just walking directly in. And in this case... They would have to go through, you know, a turnstile, possibly like a metal detector and maybe have to have a library card to get in.
0: And then it kind of takes away what you like about, about it being a welcoming public space. It right? totally Which, takes
2: that yeah. away. It does. Absolutely. But then at the same time, you know, these people also take away that sense of a welcoming space. Like, I mean, there are like four or five times a day at like the branch that is my home branch.
0: Four or five times a day. Yes,
2: there are about 24, 25 branches that have huge violet incidence problems.
0: I, the, and... th- yeah, I, the, the pro- of course, the, the big issue here is that all of us treasure our libraries. We know that they're underfunded to begin with. Uh-huh. Um, and so, so what would you say to those in charge then? I mean, this is a really about, I guess, sounding the alarm and saying this can't it can't continue this way clearly it can't continue this way
2: it can't continue this way because what's going to happen is that people are going to stop using the library we're going to lose funding and then the library will cease to exist unfortunately and i don't want that to happen you know if a member of the public gets hurt definitely attendance and and numbers statistically go way down for a long period of time because people are afraid rightfully so i don't like my my thoughts on this is that you know somehow to have some sort of vetting process or something, right? That they can't just immediately come in, but they have to have a card scanned or right, like or something like that. The bigger concern is what is going on in our community, in our city, that so many people are disenfranchised and marginalized and angry.
0: I, that, it feels that way everywhere, right? I mean, I think yeah. that's that's what people can't put their finger on is what what is what's going on here. You know, why are why are the I mean, they're, 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 the library seems to be one of those areas where it's become sort of a, a node for this kind of stuff. What what about if if you had more, you know, if it was seen as an opportunity to, to for people with training and so on to interact with with those same people, uh, would that work? <sighs>
2: I would like to think it does. But Mm -hmm. unfortunately, I like you, I I think in order to enact change for these individuals, they have to want it. I mean, I think that's like a classic sort of knowledge base. And a lot of these people don't want it. Like, we have one patron, I don't want to say their name, Mm -hmm. but we have seen them over the past several years just decline. Like, they've gotten on drugs, they've lost massive amounts of weight, we can see that their cognitive function has declined majorly. And it's really hard to observe that on the day to day.
0: Cameron, what, what can the rest of us do? Uh, those of us who use libraries, who love libraries, what can the rest of us do to try to try to help? I guess.
2: Um, well, definitely, if you want to, like, you know, reach out and speak to our managers or directors and let them know that you have a concern about violence in libraries, written down, that would go a huge way. Um, like, there needs to be some sort of public impact to say, you know, we are concerned and we want to see some sort of change. There is no great fix for the library unless we have those people who are being problematic who are being violent interested in not being problematic and violent.
0: Cameron, Um, thank you so much for your time on this. I appreciate it. No problem shining a light on a problem that's permeating our libraries across the country in canada of late it is violence aggressiveness uh, antisocial behavior librarians find themselves on a front line on the front lines of a problem that we're seeing in many different places across society these days whether it be on public transit and so on and of course the situation the origins of the issue are very complicated they are deep-seated mental health addiction homelessness issues and so forth. Uh, But the impact that we're seeing, of course, is being felt by those who will work in these places, right? Um, As I mentioned, Global News is the New Reality is going to look into this this week. It airs tomorrow at 7. The segment does. And yeah, random acts of violence hitting our streets, happening in Canada's public libraries, number of incidents of verbal assaults and physical violence has risen really sharply over the past five years. And like so many things, it was accelerated by the pandemic when libraries sort of became the first communal areas to open up again. Uh, once, uh, you know, some of the, the darkest days had passed. Experts say that libraries reflect what's going on in the community. Again, where cuts to social services have left many vulnerable people with complex needs nowhere to go. So what can libraries do? I mean, this is both a problem that needs fixing, but also an opportunity, perhaps. uh, A point of contact with people who need help, where otherwise sometimes it doesn't happen. So again, the new reality is going to look at this tomorrow night. There's a whole report on it, on what the challenges are and what the library of the future may look like. And joining me now, uh, are the segment's producer, Liz Travers in Toronto, and the reporter, uh, Melissa Ridgeon from Winnipeg. Thank you so much both for your time tonight. Thank you. thank you. I should preface this by saying I've known Liz for many, many years. She hired me for my first TV job uh, away, oh, maybe 25 years ago now. Time does fly. So <laughs> this is a great honor for me as well. At the same time, Liz, thank you.
3: Thanks, Ben. You look the same as you did when I hired
0: you at 25 years ago. Oh, you're too kind. You're too kind. Liz, tell me a bit about the importance of this story, because it feels like one that's flown under the radar a little bit. But clearly, libraries are, are going through a lot of the same experiences that we're seeing in other uh, communal places, such as public transit and so forth.
3: Well, when you think of your public library, you really think of sort of that heart of the community. And it's a place where you go to get a book or you pick a, or take your kids to story time or whatever. It's It, it really has this treasured place in uh, in our lives. So I was quite surprised when to learn about the increase in violent incidents. And and we spoke to some librarians who have faced quite incredible situations. You know, they've faced assaults, they've been spat on, they've been verbally abused, assaulted, and this is happening in our public libraries.
0: Melissa, you, you, there is one high-profile incident that you've been talking about that happened in Winnipeg, but I also get the sense, looking at the reporting, that a lot of these are not the high-profile incidents. They're sort of everyday kind of... Difficult situations for librarians who aren't necessarily trained as li- you know, to handle these situations.
4: Well, exactly. I mean, librarians are not police officers. Our librarians are not crisis workers, yet they find themselves fulfilling those roles all the time at work nowadays. And it doesn't matter where you are, what, uh, you know, big city, small city, libraries are experiencing this. Uh, the, you know, the worst of the worst would be what happened here at the Millennium Library in Winnipeg. In December, 28-year-old uh, Tyreek Kaye is his name, uh, was at the library using the computers, making plans with friends. There was a, an incident uh, and he was stabbed to death. He's, you know, grieving mother, obviously, wondering how this happens. Her son just went to the library and then this happens. There's four kids who are charged in connection with the killing. And that would be, of course, like the high end of what's what's going on. That's not an everyday occurrence,
0: right? And Liz, as you mentioned, uh, we are seeing this is this isn't. I mean, you were spending a lot. You spent a lot of time in Toronto libraries. I know Melissa's in Winnipeg, but this is happening right across the country in in communities, big and small.
3: Oh, I've uh, been looking into this, and and there are places, Richmond, BC, where where there's a record number of library workers who have been on stress leave, Prince George, where BC Work Safety has uh, determined that staff was at risk for violent incidents. There are all kinds of all kinds of places.
0: Yeah, um, Melissa, when you look at how library, I mean, and as you mentioned, it's not just librarians, it's patrons as well. Uh, mm-hmm. But how are they trying to cope? Because a library is not meant to be a fortress. And it's not meant to be, you know, a frontline mental health uh, treatment institution either. How can how are they trying to adapt to this?
4: Well, this is exactly it you know it's not the 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 years gone by of just people going to be super quiet and stick their nose in a book these have evolved into almost like drop-in centers right community hubs where people are gathering they're using 3d printers they're learning how to cook they're learning an instrument in some instances librarians are saying we have to evolve with the service the supports i guess for what we have here too so now you're looking at having social workers on site. You're looking at having community crisis workers on site. This is all part of the looking ahead at what libraries are needing to be in the future.
0: And, and Liz, I mean, we all know that libraries, not everywhere, but libraries across the country face funding issues. This is just one more thing that feels like it's been downloaded onto, uh, you, know, you know, a resource that wasn't meant to be t- tackling this topic. What did, what did you hear on the front lines from from librarians and so on about what they need from in terms of support to make this to make this viable.
3: It's really interesting because the balance also goes for the librarians and for library management. It's that they all want libraries to be welcome in place. It has mm-hmm. to be an open space all people have to feel welcome there. So one of the big approaches that they're taking is let's fill those needs. They don't get extra funding necessarily. So some of them rely on foundation money. Very many of them deal with partnerships. So they partner with other community agencies and they bring those agencies in For example, at the Toronto Reference Library, they brought in information for new Canadians. There will be language classes for new Canadians. There'll be housing supports for people who need a place to stay. Some of these fundamentals that people need, and they feel it's their job and their obligation to connect. Now, one of the important points that I want to make is that, you know, yes, we found that there are incidents, but it's still a very small fraction uh, of visits. It's very important. Like, I I would not say it's not safe to go to the library. Not at all. I mean, it's a fraction Mm. of the visits, uh, but they're taking it very seriously because they want, you know, their goal is that there'll be no incidents at all. Yeah,
0: I mean, I guess, Liz, the, the worst case scenario here would be people stop using the library because then then it just stops serving its purpose. We need to call attention to this so people understand what's happening and that librarians are supported. At the same time, you still want people to support their local library.
3: Absolutely. And and so they should, because I think anybody who hasn't visited a modern library in the last few years will be blown away by yes. what they'll <laughs> find.
0: Yeah, it's not it's not the the sort of the, the school library that I remembered from way back. There's so much going on. Uh, uh, Melissa, some final thoughts on just what you what you feel like you've learned from this, what viewers should expect to find when they see your reporting.
4: I think that people will be similarly shocked, like both Liz and I were when we started in on this story. But what the new reality in the libraries across this country what they are. And, and it's, and we don't mean that in a bad way. There's so many incredibly good things that are happening in libraries, but there's just this, these challenges that I think that a lot of people never would have thought about. I mean, even just talking around in the newsroom about this story. Oh yeah. My, my story on library violence is, is this week, library violence. Like those right. are two words you never think of going together and it wouldn't be, is it just one incident of it? No, there's, it happens. not, Frequently, but it does happen. Times have changed
0: and Liz, did you walk away with with a sense of optimism that this can be tackled and that uh, and that librarians I mean clearly librarians want to be part of the solution here
3: I'm walking away with a whole new respect for yeah. what librarians and staff handle on a daily basis and i heard one story from a librarian in london ontario and she said when one of her staff was saying sort of complaining about some of the people who were coming in and she says they all have stories and chances are at the end of those stories you'll find trauma and i think i think they're doing a tremendous job
0: well liz and melissa i look forward to watching the full report which airs tomorrow at seven on the new reality thank you so much both for your time tonight
3: thank you nice to talk to you ben thanks for having us
0: let's head to saint thomas ontario where the prime minister the premier of ontario doug ford and the ceo volkswagen were all gathered today to announce uh, the details of this massive investment in this gigafactory this battery factory that volkswagen is going to build its first outside of europe in canada i always like to look at headlines from other parts of the world to see how they've absorbed what's just been announced so here's what the new york times had to say This afternoon, Canada lands Volkswagen battery plant with billions in subsidies. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said the assistance was needed to offset incentives offered by the United States. So that's the take from the other side of the border. That pretty much lays it out there because here's how much we're going to be paying for this. $13 is how much the Canadian government, up to $13 will offer in subsidies. The Ontario government's offering a lot more. Now, this is a huge project, right? And the Prime Minister was quick to point that out in St. Thomas today. The Volkswagen EV battery plant is a generational investment in St. Thomas and in all of Ontario and Canada.
5: This project alone will create up to 3,000 direct jobs and up to 30,000 indirect jobs. In other words, this means good careers for years to come in St. Thomas and great middle-class jobs right across Ontario and the
0: rest of Canada. Right. The Prime Minister hitting not only a lot of his economic notes, but a lot of his political notes in that one, too. Now, the benefits from this have been easy to spot from the outset, right? You attract this massive factory, the first one outside of Europe for Volkswagen. It's in green technology, which everyone is fighting for right now. Uh, And it could spur a whole bunch of other tech, you know, advances here, you know, a big growth in this business in Canada, You sort of like, like recruiting a star player, right? You build your team around this one big project. We just didn't know how much it was going to cost the taxpayer. And we found out today. So 13 billion over a decade, um, with an upfront capital investment of $700 million to build the place Volkswagen's putting a lot of money in too, but as one reporter pointed out, I mean, it's one of the biggest payouts since the construction of, of the CPR way back when, uh, you know the prime minister and ontario's premier were, were obviously challenged about the amount of subsidies going into this here's what they had to say
5: it will provide millions upon millions of batteries to power canada's auto industry which is one of the engines of our clean economy and the economic impact of this project will be equal to the value of government investment in less than five years that's the math that matters These are investments that will benefit the entire community now and for generations to come. Volkswagen's new battery plant will create up to, as you heard from the Prime Minister, these are staggering numbers by the way, 3,000 direct jobs with another 30,000 indirect jobs throughout Ontario and right across our great country.
0: Here we go. The Conservative Premier of Ontario, the Liberal Prime Minister of Canada together uh, lauding this. Andreas Schotter is a professor of international strategy at the Ivy School of Business at Western University. He's also a former marketing sales controller for North America at Volkswagen. So he brings a unique perspective to this one and he joins me now. Andreas, thank you so much for taking the time on this Friday night. Uh, Pleasure, Ben. Good evening. This is a... This is a really big deal. I mean, we, we knew from the outset that, that landing this, this commitment for Volkswagen is a, is a game changer. Do you see it that way?
5: Yeah, it could be a game changer. Uh, I agree. And uh, a massive uh, job uh, producing investment is needed. You know, there has been a patchwork over southwestern Ontario. Not too bad in the uh, agriculture and food processing area, but uh, this is massive. I agree. What is missing is the front and the back end of the uh, value chain. That means the mining side and the recycling side, from my perspective.
0: I, I guess the hope is that by bringing this in, I, I compared it earlier to sort of bringing in the star player on a soccer team or on a basketball mm-hmm. team, you bring in something major and you hope that you build around it, right?
5: Yeah, uh, that's right, but as I said Canada uh, has this Achilles heel. as while well. There are the minerals in the ground uh, in remote areas in uh, also northern Ontario but there's no, at this point, I don't see that they will be accessed in sufficient numbers and in, in uh, Quick enough ways, but uh, let's hope and see, but hope might not be enough. And again, on the back end, I see an opportunity here in uh, a really new innovation-driven recycling approach, which is needed to make uh, EV batteries green in the first place, because by itself, they are not green.
0: Right. Yes, you make a good point there as well. I mean, the front end has been the end of no end of discussion, right? Why Canada can't has had a real, real trouble with these minerals, given how much demand there is around the world for them. Um, Volkswagen obviously had a lot of different, specifically the U.S., but had uh, had some options here, and they they were willing. You know, they they I guess they chose the one that looked like the best financial deal for them.
5: Hmm. I agree. The, the financial risk was completely eliminated, or oh, not completely, it's maybe overstatement, but has been largely eliminated for Volkswagen here. However, if it's not working, Volkswagen will be set back in the most important developing market for EV uh, vehicles in the world besides China. And in China, they just fell on, uh, uh, you know, from their number one position in automotive sales altogether. And they are far, far behind the Chinese manufacturers in EV sales. So they need this U.S.
0: market desperately,
5: and they need this plan to work for that reason.
0: So let's talk about the money then. I mean, $13 billion, when you look at it as the sort of subsidies the federal government is ponying up, uh, that's an awful lot of money. Uh, As the New York Times pointed out, and this was their take on it, it was because they're competing against Joe Biden and the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. They're, They're competing against the subsidies that America is offering. Is it money well spent?
5: You know, you will see later, but it, it, the the only way to attract it is to open your pockets wide. And I said this to the New York Times today as well, right? So I, I stand to this statement uh, that you op- have to open your pockets. The only problem is we are one tenth of the population of the United States and the economic power. We are we are we are t- uh, very much tied to the United States itself. How many times do you want to compete with the United, United States there? And if you don't compete. What, what is uh, the end of the story? So, yeah, I would say that star player we needed to buy hopefully will not end up like the Leafs.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, although the Leafs, the Leafs won last night, right? Um, but, <laughs> sorry, but I mean, I guess, sorry, I guess <laughs> yeah, no, of course, no, not at all. I'm from Montreal. When <laughs> <So there>, um, <laughs> w- w- one looks at this, though, I mean, it's, it's Canada. Cause there's a couple of issues here that I think are, are a bit concerning. Canada has a long history of subsidizing things that don't work out, and also there wasn't a lot of transparency about this one. Like we, we don't really know how the negotiations worked, or I mean, we've been told about, we've given lots of numbers about jobs and so on. And it's all fine and dandy, but it feels like this was done in a way where no one was really told. This wasn't really the liberal plan to boost the green economy, which was giving huge subsidies to multinationals to come, you know, lay their lay down the roots here.
5: Yeah, I was wondering uh, all the way since I gave my first interview mid uh, mid March about it when it was all hush hush and still secret about how this all panned out. But it's also a pattern of this current government to keep things that way and not disclose too much of the negotiation. On the other hand, I can understand it, right? That's a big a big player deal, and uh, you know I'm I'm quite impressed that uh, at least in Ontario uh, there seems to be a bipartisan uh, agreement on that one, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, Doug, for the political side of this was, was essentially the, the prime minister taking the opportunity to kind of criticize Pierre Poliev from the podium with the CEO of Volkswagen standing beside him, which was a bit of an odd situation because there were conservative, uh, MPs in the, in the, in the audience as well. Um, what will you be looking for then? I mean, you know, here we go. Uh, the Volkswagen are coming. The money has been promised. Um, what, what next then? I mean, w- what should we be looking out for in the near future?
5: So as I said uh, earlier, it's the front and the back end. So I want to see right. Canada to, uh, you know, really uh, make substantial uh, progress on the mining side. If you don't do this, I mean, still North Ontario is a, a long way away from uh, from the factory in Saint Thomas. Saint Thomas is a long way away from Tennessee, where Volkswagen has its manufacturing plants. On the other hand, an electric vehicle is much fairly easy to build compared to a combustion engine vehicle. And in a modular approach, there could be game changing ways how to assemble batteries and vehicles as such. So what I would like to see is the mining commitment part. And if this happens like it did a year ago with the LNG discussion with Europe after Russia invaded Ukraine, you know, the U.S. Uh, has shipped LNG like crazy to to Europe, but yes. uh, Canada is not even able to ship because there's no terminal. You know, if yeah, that's no. the same thing here, then, you know, I'm not holding my breath that this will be not a lame duck. But I'm also right. hopeful.
0: Andreas, when you look when you look at this idea that and, and you know, you gave that interview to the New York Times where you talked about it as well. Um, competing against competing against the Americans for subsidies is, is tough. And then if there's a change of the guard in the US too, this plant mightn't make sense if, if things start to shift there too. It feels like everything in the automotive industry. We're so closely tied to the US, it feels like competing against them is not a great idea.
5: No, but therefore, I like the investment in the battery technology, right? So, I like it from that perspective. You're not, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that, you know, hoping that an entire vehicle manufacturing will pop up next to, to the plant in St. Thomas. Yeah, this might happen, but this should not be the value proposition of this investment. So, what we are seeing in the world right now is a regionalization push. Some call it deglobalization, but it's not really deglobalization, it's regionalization. And electric right. vehicles are a great, a great uh, uh, sub-industry in the automotive industry for regionalization. And, uh, you know, as, again, provided that we get to the minerals and the minerals are from uh, from Canada uh, and not from China, right? If we can do that, absolutely, I support that. And then it's complementary to what's happening in the U.S. And the regionalization piece ties us back into the United States in a stronger way. However, in the United States, we have massive gigafactories, not only by Tesla, but also by companies like Envision, which China owned, one of the largest battery manufacturers in the world. They have a worldwide network of battery manufacturers and others who are putting up factories. So this will be only one of many. So I like that it happened fast. So there's a kind of a first mover advantage or early mover advantage here. So, but again, there's an Achilles heel, mining, mining, mining.
0: Right. So you really want to see that happen or you think this could be a bit of a disaster because we know that the gov- current government has had trouble uh, getting those sorts of projects off the ground with regulatory uh, approvals and so on. So th- it, in some ways, it feels like we, we didn't put the cart before the horse, but we need the horse pretty soon.
5: Absolutely. I agree 100 percent. Right, Absolutely.
0: So for people who aren't in southwestern Ontario, I mean, clearly for the Liberals politically, this is a very good deal for them. Uh, They spend a ton of money and they attract something big and flashy to southwestern Ontario that's vote rich. How about for the rest of us? How about for everyone else in Canada looking at this going, how are we going to benefit from this one?
5: It's funny, Ben, because I thought about the same thing. You know, when you look at Ontario, Ontario is a magnet for immigration. We are planning now to bring 500,000 immigrants into Canada. We need them desperately, right, to maintain the the working population uh, and so on and so forth. But most of them land in Ontario in the first place. So the distribution of that population growth and the absorption of this population growth is, is, will be hard and tough, right? And the London St. Thomas area has seen... In the nation, I think the highest jump in rents itself, so when you right. look at that right there 's a whole underlying problem for the population there itself and for the redist- or for the distribution of uh, of uh, the economic impact of that investment it 's complicated.
0: It is. I mean, I saw that the province of Ontario is in, is is promising to invest more in infrastructure and police stations and all the kinds of things you're going to need to absorb 3,000 new jobs into the area and presumably more of it works out. But again, if, if you're sitting at home in, in Saskatoon or or in Calgary or in Vancouver, what does this mean for you? Anything? Will there be residual benefits for the, for the country as a whole? I mean, clearly an automotive industry is a good thing, presumably, but it depends how much you have to pay for it.
5: Yeah, so the the, the, the problem is, of course, distance in Canada. There's two problems, right? The distance we never – it is what it is. That's the geographical makeup of the country. What we don't have, and I've seen, not seen that uh, enough, is uh, cross-provincial border integration. It's sometimes right. in many – I mean, I don't want to uh, um, divert too much from the automotive industry uh, discussion, right. but we ha- we've seen other industries where it's much harder to trade – uh, specific goods and products and services across provincial uh, borders, than it is crossing the Canada-U.S. border, right? So if right. Canada really, really wants to have a more integrated market, wants to be that, it needs to actually open up its intra-country uh, trade and, and collaboration and recognition of, uh, of uh, jobs and, and education certificates. That's one right. thing. Or the individual provinces need to start to have their own linkages to the United States and build out of their strengths.
0: Well, Andreas, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for your time tonight.
5: Pleasure, Ben. Anytime.
0: Ghosting. Maybe it's a term you've heard. It's something that's used a lot these days. It's when someone terminates a relationship by ending communication quickly, abruptly, usually, and without much explanation, if any. Now, whether or not you'd consider ghosting someone may have a lot to do with how you view relationships in general. We talk about it a lot when it comes to sort of online dating, right? To internet dating, to to that world. But it happens in friendship as well. And, you know, it's one of those things that, that can be... Um, you know it, it can it can be damaging In one study from 2018 39% of participants said they had been ghosted by a friend 39% and that's that's high and a study published earlier this year found that people often feel just as hurt by being ghosted by a friend as they do by being ghosted by a romantic partner sometimes these are people you've known for a very long time maybe they're not as close to you or you know or they're not don't mean the same thing to you uh, in affairs of the heart, but it, um, yeah, you know, losing a friend that way without explanation can be really hard on many parts of you because it's a lot about how we see ourselves, right? Our sense of belonging, our sense of control, our sense of self-esteem, as it's been pointed out, and uh, when someone just cuts you off without warning and without uh, without reason, it can leave us wondering what went wrong. Now, oftentimes, it's not about us, right? It's about them, but how do you cope with it? How common is it? Uh, Joining me now with more on this is Michelle Druin. She's a professor of psychology at Purdue University, Fort Wayne, and author of Out of Touch, How to Survive an Intimacy Famine. Michelle, thank you for your time tonight.
6: Thank you for having me.
0: I mean, ghosting feels like a new term for an old phenomenon, but I guess with, uh, as you pointed out, as you point out, when you look at sort of in Out of Touch, you look a lot at, at how, you know, social media and so on, how technology has changed the way our relationships work. I guess ghosting is a new term for a new era of relationships in some ways.
6: Absolutely. I mean, sure, it's an old phenomenon, but it was never as salient as it is now when you know that it only takes two seconds to send a text message and people always have their phones. So, sure, maybe someone didn't call you back, but I think we were more forgiving 20 years ago that people have busy lives and they may not always be near a phone, whereas now we know that people are constantly connected. So we don't have as many excuses for the people who seemingly cut us, cut us off.
0: Right. Yeah, I never held any grudges against the pen pal that stopped writing, you know, the pen pal from abroad that stopped, <laughs> r- stopped writing 40 years ago, right? You'd think, oh, right. well, yeah, sitting yeah, down he was to write busy. a letter. He grew up. Yeah, he, <laughs> yeah, he, yeah he all of white. those things.
6: Yeah, and uh, now we're so, much less forgiving because we expect, and it's common for people to be constantly connected.
0: Yeah, because often you're connected in many different ways. You're connected by email, by, you know, by phone number, by Facebook, by any number of places where you can communicate with each other. We so often associate it with the dating world, right? I mean, that's really where I've always heard the term ghosting is sort of within the context of, of you know, dating apps and so on.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I think because romantic relationships are a big focus of life, as you said, the matters of the heart are things that we're often thinking about how do we get it right and people often talk about ghosting and the pain it causes for people who are just searching for ways to get relationships right
0: Right But it happens to friends, too. I was surprised by that thirty nine percent number that thirty nine percent of people surveyed for that. and this is in a New York Times article. thirty nine percent of people surveyed had said they had been ghosted by a friend. Um, it, it impacts in a different way, but I suspect it's it it, it hurts in a similar way.
6: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So I just conducted some research on this topic in my lab, and we're presenting it tomorrow, actually, at oh, the Midwestern okay. Psychological Association Conference. And not only are people saying they use it ghosted. They've also blocked friends. And they've also ghosted and blocked family members. So what I think we need to do when we're thinking about these questionnaires is really widen our scope of what is ghosting. I think now, based on this recent research that we did in my lab, that ghosting isn't always a permanent separation. It could be a temporary pause. Someone is just saying, right now, I'm not going to answer the question. I'm not in the headspace to do it. I'm not in the place to do it. And it's also, I think, a question to ask people is, how long did they ghost you? Because I think some people consider ghosting, you know, they didn't respond for a whole week. Whereas others can say, you know, I haven't heard from them in a year. So I think getting some timelines on that ghosting and associating it with different emotions would be a really valuable step in this research.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think when I read sort of the articles, or I mean, the, and the comments, there's always a lot of people are are an open book about this topic online, uh, when people write about it. A lot of these were people they had known for many, many years who suddenly just stopped. And it, it stopped for years and years. There was one I was reading that was, you know, we've been friends for 40 years, and then all of a sudden, I haven't spoken or heard from them in a decade, right? Th- those kinds of things. Uh, you know, so really yeah. impact, impactful friendship breakups, so to speak.
6: Yeah, I mean, those those definitely hurt for a lot of the reasons that you already mentioned. As humans, we have this deep need for love and belongingness. It's one of our fundamental human needs, according to Abraham Maslow, right above needing security and food <laughs> and water. Yeah. You have love and belongingness. So it hits us at one of the places where as human beings, we are most vulnerable. Not only that, you talk about this sense of control. As human beings, we want to see how things finish. We don't like leaving things unfinished. And so when someone goes to you, instead of giving you an explanation, it leaves a lot unfinished. So we're left then with this sense of confusion about the status of this relationship. As humans, we are also socially adept beings. So we're used to thinking about what other people think. And that's actually helpful. That's a great quality to have as human being. If you didn't ever think about how other people think, then you probably wouldn't have many friendships. So I think the people who probably it hurts most are the people who really value friendship and can put themselves in another person's shoes. But I think one of the things that people are forgetting in this is that their life ticked on and they were dealing with things that maybe you didn't recognize or realize. And maybe the relationship changed in a way that you did not perceive, but they perceived. And sometimes people just want to avoid an awkward conversation and therefore don't have that conversation. So your own sense of urgency about it or your own need of closure may not match the rhythm of the person who ghosted you.
0: Yeah. I was reading one of the things that I found interesting was that part of the issue, not the problem, part of the issue is that we consider friendship to be different from romantic love in some ways, that there's a certain permanence to friendship because, you know, the, the intertwining of emotion and so on, and the idea of exclusivity is not there in the same way. So we consider friendship to be something more permanent and more lasting, when in fact, sometimes it just isn't because of circumstances and any number of things that you've mentioned.
6: Absolutely. And I remember in that New York Times article, they talk about, this friendship that this person had had in college and how they drifted apart after this person had, you know, made an attempt to contact them again. And I just think contexts of lives change and some people don't have the capacity to sustain a friendship as their context changes. I think that Right now, ghosting hurts when we think about it within the confines of romantic relationships. I think when we lose a close friend because of that longevity, it's really unexpected. You expect friendships to last forever. And Mm -hmm. romantic relationships, I think people enter with a healthy dose of you know, non-idealism, they know that, you know, relationships sometimes end, romantic partners, 50% of marriages end. <laughs> so if you're yeah. just talking a basic romantic partner or someone you meet in a dating app, obviously being ghosted doesn't feel like that. But as you said, these friendships, you expect that they're going to last forever. So when someone isn't feeling it and they, they want to leave that friendship, I think it's really shocking to people that, they would just be ghosted.
0: We're talking about being ghosted this half hour, not specifically in the dating world or on a dating app where it's quite common, but but by friends because it is less common. It's something that's been uh, reported on recently. Michelle Druin is my guest this half hour. She's a professor of psychology at Purdue University, Fort Wayne. She's done some research on this recently as well. I didn't want you to give up what you're about to announce or disclose tomorrow at this conference, but um, I, I guess one of the big questions is if you're on the receiving end of this, and I guess we always look at the receiving end of this, if you are the one Uh, being ghosted, not the ghostee, so to speak. Uh, What should you do? Because I guess part of the problem is that it really eats people up wanting to know why, right? And sometimes you're just never going to get that answer.
6: Yeah, I think that one good strategy is to just be honest. If you've been ghosted and you really want that person back in your life, then reach out to them and say, I would love to have you back in my life. I'm not really sure what happened, but if you'd like to contact me, I'm always open to it. I think that would be a really nice way. And if you don't hear from them, understanding that no response is a response. If people go to you, they usually have a reason why. And you know, before the break, I talked about this rhythm. I think we yeah. often lose sight that we have this internal rhythm, which may have a sense of urgency when you feel you're being rejected by someone because we're super sensitive to rejection. But what you have to recognize is they might have other things going on in their life. And that rhythm that you have doesn't necessarily match the rhythm. So I think giving people grace, understanding that the way you feel about a relationship or a friend or your source of urgency is not necessarily matched by the outside world. So that's one, one way, you know, a good way to reach out, give it your all, try to be open and honest with the way you're feeling. I would love to hear from you. I I miss you. I, you know, miss my life without you. And then if they don't write back, then you have to just process that as your new reality.
0: Yeah. What about the person who's done the ghosting? Is there a way you can repair that damage? Cause I get the sense what happens sometimes, especially with friends, uh, but also within, within romantic life as well is that it escalates, right? So all of a sudden there's a period where you don't speak to each other. And then all of a sudden that becomes. There's no one wants to take the first step, right? Uh, So if you're the one who's done the ghosting, and you've changed your mind, or you feel like, well, wait a second, I'm, you know, maybe whatever was troubling me before, whatever was was wrong at the time, that's changed for me again. And maybe I can welcome friends or certain friends back in uh, to my life. I suppose you can reach out and do the same thing that you just suggested the other way around.
6: Absolutely. So I saw an old friend from high school. His father died, and I went to his funeral, and he came back, and he spent quite a bit of time talking to me. And I said to this friend, you know, we've really lost touch. I tried to reach out several times, and he said, yeah, I know. I I've gotten busy with family life. And one of the things I recognized is it was probably difficult for him to maintain his friendship with me once he had a wife and a family. And the nature right. of that relationship was different in the context of him being a devoted husband to his wife and his children. So I think that when we were able to just to reconnect, he did say, you know, I wish we'd have stayed in touch. It was you know, our friendship was really valuable to me. And it's so wonderful to have you now in this moment. And if he reached out to me, I would never begrudge him that time that we didn't talk because I know that he had other obligations and those competing obligations won his time. And I think... On both sides, I think there just needs to be a little grace and probably just a lot of honesty. This is why it happened. You know, I was busy with this or I felt conflicted because of this. But I think, you know, those kinds of discussions are often really difficult for people. It's sometimes easier to ghost than to have a difficult conversation about why someone did it in the first place. But if they... If they can be honest and say this is why, I think a lot of people would extend forgiveness.
0: Yeah, I, I was. a lot of the comments were interesting um, to, to, the, to, the, to a variety of articles I've been reading because there's a whole subset of people that think that, that ghosting someone is really the ultimate sign of cowardice and disrespect, right? That there is never mm-hmm. an excuse that you could always sort of say, listen, uh, you know, I don't think we should be friends anymore. And yet, I don't know how many people who, who would actually have that conversation.
6: It would be really difficult. It's really hard to tell people negative things or to tell them how you really feel. And some people think that ghosting is a way of letting someone down easily rather than having a hard conversation about what you don't like or, you know, resentment that's built or just the myriad reasons why people would end the relationship those can be hurtful words. So I think that anyone who's ever had a bold truth told to them that was difficult to hear would also say that that hurts. What it doesn't leave though, is that uncertainty that I talked about before the break, that uncertainty that really irks us as human beings, because we want to know the end. We want to know the answer. And, you know, sometimes giving them that finality it, it, it is helpful. I, let me say one more thing, because I think of some people ghost because they want to leave that book open. They don't want to completely tell you, hey, I don't want to be friends with you anymore, because I think they want to maybe leave open the opportunity in the future to go back to that friendship if they want to. So I never think of ghosting as a permanent closure. What I think of it is I'm just not feeling this right now. And again, right now can be a day, right now can be a week, a month, a year, a decade, Um, but they just aren't feeling it right now. And I think if we adopted that reframe, then a lot of people would be able to take ghosting a little bit better than it's usually taken.
0: Yeah, it's not taken well, uh, generally. Michelle Druin, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it.
6: Yeah, thank you so much
7: or two in a lifetime now it's you know a a meter in a lifetime so we have to do something about it or it's going to be extremely difficult and maybe not effective to armor all the 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 uh, the, sea, the, the shorelines as this i i talk about shanghai right. also i mean and and shanghai essentially is armored you're going to have to accommodate with what's going on and uh you have to learn to live with it i yeah. talk about uh, the the Sunderbands in in bangladesh Mm-hmm. where mangroves are a big uh, a natural barrier to the the, the 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 problems of rising of attack from the sea Of all all sorts. And that's been going on for a long time. We just have to take it up to the next level.
0: Mary Soderstrom's latest book is called Against the Seas, Saving Civilizations from Rising Waters. Ahead of Earth Day, we're talking about this uh, very central problem. And one that, 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 Mary, what I find interesting about it, I mean, we were talking about Hurricane Fiona, and we did a lot of uh, interviews in Porto Basque uh, over the last while, and how there's a community that sort of sat in the same place for hundreds of years. And because of recent events, they're thinking, can we still stay here? And yeah. all there's all these different isolated examples that we're seeing of communities saying, well, how, you know, are we able to survive what's happening to the seas that we depend on? And and that's and, and that and I feel like reading your book, it's kind of just putting the flag back up and saying, you know, these may be isolated incidents that we read about that forget about, but it's happening everywhere and it's happening quickly.
7: Yes. I mean, quickly is the thing. That, that's the big word because, as I said, is it's been going on for a long time. It's just the pace, which is so much more. And we can see it from year to year as opposed from generation to generation. One of the things that has to be done is to consider, as in, in Puerto Basque, uh, retreating. And there's examples from the the, the, the uh, St. Lawrence Estuary where communities have gone in and, and essentially bought out people, bought out properties where uh, it's been... Uh, very clear that there is they're, they're at risk and so people won't build on it and so this is a, a, a step back from the shoreline
0: it is but um, it's incredible as as you point out in the book with the example from uh, from hurricane sandy it's incredibly expensive to do that and you have to really have it planned out and and oftentimes we yes. kind of the, the reaction to this is kind of oh my god i can't believe that just happened we're going to have to move all this stuff and then and then it's then it kind of descends into a bit of chaos
7: well, yeah, that's. I think we have to realize that getting allowing people to rebuild after this is it's throwing money down a a rat a rat hole or mm-hmm. essentially down, down the see, drain. A, yeah, the, literally down the drain. A combination of not allowing rebuilding on land which is uh, at risk mm-hmm. and also doing a strategic retreat it's going to save money in the long run. Every province now has a a program uh, for a disaster, and there's usually a cap on how much. Get $150,000 or something like that. But usually there is nothing that will, will keep you from applying again and, and again and again. So in the long run, we're in many cases, we're going to save money for yeah. the government, for insurance companies, for the individuals if we just step back. I, yeah. I mean,
0: because I, I think one thing that, that becomes very clear in look, in reading through your book is that is that the mitigation strategies that that you know are are coming painfully are, are coming very slow. They're okay. not they're not coming as fast as the disasters are. And therefore we're gonna have to have sort of an integrated approach to coping with it, which is trying to bring down CO2 emission levels at the same time as yes. recognizing that we're populating areas that are increasingly vulnerable.
7: Yes, exactly. Exactly. The barrier approach to to uh, uh this problem is also extremely expensive in venice which have, oh the project is it was i think for yeah, about 50 yeah. 15 years and that is just as the cost is just right.
0: astronomical although for venice i mean if, if you let <laughs> you can't i mean like the maldives right? Well, these are areas that attract lots of people so if, if you let them let them sink then unfortunately that's it right so i guess there are yeah yeah there are mitigation efforts that are sometimes uh the money might be i mean not that it's not that it's a wise spending of money but i guess uh that's the you know it's it's survival right so What you walk away from this Uh, book with with relative with with signs of optimism and also some warnings, right? Understand from history that this is not happening for the first time. So let's learn from the past as we look towards what comes what comes next.
7: Yes, yes. I mean, I I I partly I think that. uh, if you don't believe it, you can do something. You're just going to sit there and and let the wave break over you. And we, I don't believe we can do that. So we have to to look at the strategies first of all. Bring out down CO two levels, but we're still going to be left with all this water, and and so we have to figure out strategies to deal with this. You know, it's it's a big order, but the, the question is, we have to do something. You, you, yeah, unless you want to drown. I guess that's what it comes down to. Yeah,
0: I, I, or unless you just want to sort of. Watch as as we see these re- repeats of these incidents again and again and again, where communities are essentially washed out. And then, what do you do yeah. with them afterwards? Uh, uh, did, did you did you answer your question when you with the question you set out to answer? Did you manage to answer?
7: Oh well, I mean, yeah, I, I guess the answer of uh, uh, the Highway One Thirty Two. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's going to have to going to have to be moved. And now, no one's talking right. about it at this time when they're going to move that stretch because that's really difficult. It's going to happen. The other thing I think we have to think about is that well, I, I use music to some extent as a bridge in, in, in between sections yes. of the book,
0: right? The interludes, and
7: mm-hmm. and, and one of the things that's at the beginning is, is I talk about Otis Redding's song "Sitting on the on the Dock of the Bay," right? Uh, and he ends up by saying we're wasting time, and I think that's the kind of thing that we have to stop. We have to stop wasting time.
0: Well, Mary Sutter. <laughs> good luck. Good luck with. I mean, yes. I mean, again, as we started off saying, it, you know, the idea of rising sea levels is a, such a massive issue, but we're seeing these little isolated incidents that remind us about what's what exactly is happening out there. Uh, good luck with the book launch. Thank you so much for your time.
7: Well, thank you. It's good to talk to you.